Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 57 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I hope you're having a great week. Hope everything's going well for you. You're feeling good. You're feeling healthy. Thank you, as always, for tuning in each and every week. I know there is a bunch of you that are dedicated listeners that uh, tune into the show every week. And thank you, especially to those of you that engage on Facebook, that comment, that leave some likes. Uh, let me shout out a few of you. Tanner Holtman up there in Victoria and BC. Tanner's a great supporter of the show and an awesome coach. Thank you for tuning in every week. Annalise Pisa, thank you for tuning in. Mark Silverman, one of my good friends and a great coach up there in Washington, D.C., always tunes in every week and shares the show around on Facebook. And the wonderful Joe Hodson, who I met in London, another great coach and an incredible vegetarian chef that uh, was the chef at one of the retreats that I was at last year. And Joe's a great supporter of the show and always uh, comments and likes the show when I share it on Facebook. So thank you guys and thank you to all of you tune in every week. I really, really appreciate it. Big news in the last week has been uh, the suicide of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. It's heavy stuff. You know, I don't have a lot to say about it. You guys know that uh, deep to my core is uh, my mission to end male suicide. So every time I see something like this in the news, it's uh, it hits pretty hard. And I know that you know, my mission is going to be around for a long time, try and uh, help people in these situations. I asked a, a question on Facebook last week, you know, why uh, Anthony Bourdain in particular seemed to hit us so hard. And the responses seemed to indicate that he was a guy who appeared to be living his life on his own terms, who was a maverick, a little bit of a rebel. He kind of went against the grain a little bit and didn't really care what society thought of him, just did his own thing, was uh, honest about his issues, about getting over drug addiction issues, you know, in the past. I know he was uh, a pretty heavy drinker, but, you know, all in all, he seemed to have a pretty good grip on his life, doing something he loved and uh, on TV, celebrity, beautiful daughter, all accounts, and uh, still chose to take his own life, so... A lot of you, you know, looked up to all those traits and it seemed like that uh, he, you know, it's heartbreaking for us uh, normal people that we see someone that like that who you know, has it all and then still manages to end it. It kind of leaves us questioning what, what hope there is for us. But all I can say is, you know, we're all the same. We're all the same deep down. Although you see an image of, you know, what we think these celebrities' lives might be, we, we only get a tiny glimpse and we have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. I would never speculate as to whether he was depressed or whether he was, you know, had some other issues at play. It's not really important, you know. What's important is that uh, we lost a really great guy, and it's incredibly sad. It's incredibly, incredibly sad. And I think the the thing is it leaves all of us left behind with this, all these unanswered questions. I think that's the hardest part about it. We don't get any answers and it's, uh, it's our, our longing to close the loops and to understand so that we can kind of make sense of, of life and death more in our own heads. That's the challenge with these kind of suicides is there's so many unknowns. So all I would say is, uh, look, if you're struggling, I'm here. I'm always here. I'm easily within reach. And uh, I know sometimes when you're struggling that the last thing you want to do is to reach out to anyone. I know I've been in that, that case many times before, but, you know, I know if I ever go into a dark time, 
I know that there is uh, two or three people that I just need to reach out to. They understand. They're not going to try and fix me. They're not going to try and uh, overreact or anything. They're just going to be with me and talk and listen and, and just hang out and, and be, yeah, be a friend, which is all you need in those situations. So, yeah, if you're ever feeling like you're in a dark place, please always know that you can reach out to me and, you know, we won't have any deep conversations. I'll just hang out with you and be with you and just reassure you that I understand. Moving on to uh, a brighter note. So Mike Matthews came on the show this week. I wanted to get Mike on the show to talk about his journey through what he would say his entry into manhood. And Mike has been through a lot of men's work. He's been in and out of relationships and uh, is one of the guys that's really poured himself into figuring out what it really means to become a man and how to thrive as a man and in relationships in your life in this day and age. So excited to get Mike on to hear his journey. He's very engaging. He's a very good storyteller. And I think you're going to enjoy this episode. So enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Mike Matthews. Well, first of all, thanks for coming on the show. It's uh, always a pleasure to have uh, people on, learn about their lives and appreciate you taking the time out to speak with us. Take us back to your upbringing, Mike, and where you, where you grew up, what defined that part of your life, some of the turning points, and just help us to get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, sure. I was born just north of Liverpool in the northwest of England. My dad, his side of the family were Scousers, Liverpudlians, working class family from Irish stock, Irish immigrants. He was the youngest of five children. My mum, she was from a more affluent family, more middle class. Uh, my grandparents there were, one was a nurse, the other one was a, my grandpa was an accountant. And it didn't take long before we moved down south of England. Um, my dad was a teacher and he was looking for more work and ended up moving down to a place called Hereford, which is a small market town famed for the SAS. So we actually bought our house off somebody from the SAS and we found <laughs> bullets, found bullets in the wall and things like that. <laughs> And, and it was an army, kind of RAF town, SAS town, and found we were very much the outsiders. And I've spoken to my brother and my sister since, and it's something which I didn't really, I thought it was just me, but we all felt a little kind of um, not entirely at home there. We felt like we were the outsiders, and we would love to go back to Liverpool. That was where we felt we had identity. And I've noticed that on their Facebook profiles, they both say that they are from Liverpool. Um, we're actually not from Liverpool. We're from just north of Liverpool. But it's, it was the identity that we needed as children to feel like we were a part of something because we came into this little town and, yeah, it didn't really feel necessarily that it was we were a part of it. But my life down there was great uh, for the first kind of through my formative years, my up to primary school, like 10, 11 years old. I just remember the weather was a whole lot warmer than where I live now, which is in the north of England. It was beautiful weather. We would play lots and, yeah, life was good. I had a great time at primary school and I do remember that things were very tight. So my mum was a housewife bringing up three children, worked tremendously hard. My dad was a deputy head of a school and two years later became a headmaster of a primary school. And But times were really tight financially I remember as a child getting a little Pepsi can and there was a radio it was a radio inside the can I remember being worried I would have been about eight really worried 
about my parents and how they could afford it. <laughs> so it was never like discussed, but it was always, it was clearly something I was in the background that money was tight. And as I've gone on to kind of explore my relationship with money and abundance and my scarcity mindset, I kind of come back a lot to those times of belief where, you know, you had to work hard to get what you had in life. But having said that, you know, we were a very musical, very sporty family. We all played lots of instruments. And if we ever showed an interest in an instrument, there was always every effort to, to find that instrument, yeah, for it to come into our hands, for us to explore sport or for anything that we wanted, really. And um, I was tremendously grateful for that. I kind of benefit so much now in my life because I've got so many interests. And um, yeah, it was uh, that, those formative years were a good time in my life. What does it mean? To, so to come from Liverpool, what does that mean for people that don't live in the UK? Yeah, well, Liverpool's got... <laughs> I actually went to study there. So I went back to Liverpool and lived there for 10 years. Liverpool has a very, very strong personality. Hereford, not so much with personality. No one's really heard of it. Liverpool, it's big for the Beatles. I actually lived in one of the one of Paul McCartney's houses as a, as a student. You know, we had, cool. used to have tourists. You know, not when I was ever there, but people would say they're tourists sometimes be outside the house taking photos and, and you felt as if you were a part of something. We were football fans and you know, we'd go back to Liverpool for the football and we're, the family were up there. There was a community. It just You just felt as if you were a part of something. I was always very aware that my dad's energy changed around the big city. He became, you know, he'd always talk to me about Places he went out, danced, and girls he dated as we were driving up towards Liverpool, and you just felt as if you were you were coming home. You felt you were a part of something. And Liverpool was it had so much history. You know, it's a big shipping town, lots of trade that went to the states. There's a lot of historically, there's a lot of money in the city, a lot of fantastic architecture. It's got more listed buildings than any other city outside of London. It's a it's a historic city, and, you, and I felt that I owned a part of that, if only in a tiny way, because this is where my family heritage came from. So that was really meaningful to me. Yeah, that's very cool. I, I've been there once before. I remember going to the, the they have a Beatles museum. Yeah, and, in Albert Dock. Yeah, it's so cool, right on the docks. And they have a, um, a replica of the, the cavern. Is it called the cavern, the bar where the, the Beatles cavern, used yeah. to play? Yeah, they have a whole well, I, replica yeah. of it. I was a student there for three years, and we used to go clubbing at the cavern used to go to Strawberry Fields. I used to live near Penny Lane. You know, all the, you know, Fourth Lynn Road, which is where Paul McCartney's house was. It's now a National Trust Museum. You know, these were all literally five minutes from my door. And I was, I was a massive Beatles fan as well. So it was just, it was amazing for me to, to be around such, such influences. And I was a musician as well. When I got to university, I was, a, I was learning guitar and I was in a band. So it was just, you know, the, the city meant a lot. And it still does. Yeah, I guess growing up around the Beatles and knowing that they came from, you know, you lived in their house, it must give you a sense of anything's possible. These it, guys from Liverpool that took over the world. Yeah, I mean, it really did. I mean, I remember when I was going for my open day, I was, because one of the halls of residence is right next to Penny Lane. And I just remember this feeling of, literally, as you say, anything's possible. You know, these guys came from, you know, very simple stock. They were just normal lads. And yeah, it went on to create so much fantastic music in the world. And I was aware of that even as a kid. So kind of going back to the city, you felt very proud. And if you ever go to Liverpool and speak to Liverpudlians, they're a tremendously proud group of people. 
you will rarely meet friendlier people in the world than the people in Liverpool. And you really felt a part of that. And that, so for me going back there each time to see family, it was always, you know, we always have smiles and big smiles. And I always remember my sister particularly would always come back with a Scouse accent. You know, we'd only ever be there for two or three days, but she'd still come back, you know, sounding like, yeah, like a Scouser. And that, it was just a sign that we just desperately wanted to feel a part of something. Yeah, I do have very fond memories of those times. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's it's good uh, good background. I, I feel the same about New Zealand because New Zealand has a very strong identity. You know, being brought up in New Zealand, it's very yeah, you're raised in a very specific way. So I think mm. it's um, it's interesting that some people don't have that experience of being really attached to their place of birth. So where does it go from there as you get into your teenage years and into university? Yeah, so things started to change in my teenage years. For those who you know, if you met me, I'm very tall. And I've always been the tallest person in the class. I was at primary school, I was taller than most of the teachers. Uh, secondary school, I didn't thicken out. What I did was I, I got very greasy, I was getting very spotty. Um, I had a stutter throughout my childhood. And basically everything you could have became more accentuated um, as I moved into the next stage of my education. Uh, I was a very shy child as well, so I kind of really went into a bubble. And I kind of disappeared into that bubble for, for many years, really. I was just very afraid, and I didn't really know who I was. And um, I had various things that I was pretty good at. I was very good at sport. I was quite bright. So I did have ways to kind of come out of my shell. But I would just retreat into that shell just almost constantly as I look back. And I didn't really have a, a peer group or the kind of traditional friendship group that people would have. So I felt became more and more lonely as I, as I got older. And it took many years before I even realised it because when you're so involved in experiencing something at such a young age, you, you don't really have a great deal to compare it to other than other people. Mm. And, and I never really remember thinking that I didn't have anything. I just thought this is just the way it is. This is, you know, when you grow up, you know, this is just how it, how life is. And I look back at those times and I kind of, from about the age of 12, I had a realisation recently that I've called my lost 15 years, kind of between the ages of 12 and 27. I just almost disappeared, really. In my life, you know, I went to university, I did certain things, but I was hiding. I started hiding around the age of 12 and I hid for about the next 15 years. And that, that was quite a hard realisation to, to come up with. Recent, that happened quite recently, actually. Mm. Yeah, you don't really have the, the awareness at that stage, do you? So you no. You're just doing, doing what you do, put one foot in front of the other. Absolutely. And everything we do in our lives is relative to, to what we see around us. So, you know, if you always say that the people in very poor countries are often just as happy and not happier than people in this country because it's who you measure your happiness against that, that matters. And everyone around me, I was just relative to where everyone else was. I, I just didn't perceive myself as being any, any better or any, any worse than anyone else. I was just feeling, oh, so this is how it is. This is, you know, this is how life is. I didn't have another life or another set of experiences for me to measure it against. I was always pretty quiet. I was always pretty shy. So as I got older, you, you were able to then view it against other people's lives with a bit more intelligence and a bit more um foresight as you look back and you think all oh, right so yeah that was a tough time that was a really tough time that i was going through yeah i look at 
kids, you know, with the kind of life they have today. And I think they have a completely different set of challenges, you know, with, I don't know how kids cope with social media. And I have a young niece, she's 11, 12 years old, and we were recently exchanging messages on WhatsApp for the very first time. And whilst it was a very, very weird experience, I was just starting to imagine her life now with everything that kids today have to deal with. And it was just nothing that, whilst my problems seemed great at the time, you know, relative to what kids have to do today, it feels like it's nothing. But then it's all relative to your own time. You know, we look back to my parents' time and they would probably think that their lives are very simple compared to what I had to go through. But the reality is everybody has difficult times. Everybody has to go through difficult things. Just don't often realise what you're going through until after you've experienced it. So what were some of the more difficult parts of your early 20s? My, my upbringing was strongly influenced by... My sister was somebody who was very, uh, very difficult child growing up. She was, she was angry quite a lot of the time for one reason or another. And unfortunately, with me being the next in line as a children, it, it resulted in me having a very dysfunctional relationship with women as a result. My mum was going through some difficult times as well and used to fall out quite a lot. So these two, the two most influential women in my life people that I just did not really get on with and I went into a bubble of believing that I had to please women just behave do the right thing don't upset them and everything will be okay and this is what this little boy was learning as, as he was growing up and as I kind of got into my late teens early 20s relationships with women were just just awful I was keeping them metaphorically and quite literally sometimes at arm's length. It took me many years to be able to to recognise that behaviour and to do something about it. I was travelling actually in Australia when I was about 23 and it was around this time that I was actually starting to make friends with women almost for the first time. I actually had female friends and I was 23. And I remember this one friend of mine said to me that she said, and I remember this, I still remember it so clearly to this day, she said, you give fuck off signals. And she kind of <laughs> stuck out the Vs at me. I was like, and it was one of those weird moments of when someone says something to you and it just intellectually it didn't hit home, but something in my body went, oh, that there's something in what she just said. And I was just started just pumping up. What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> what do I do? Because I sensed that she was right. And I'd never connected and never connected it in the way that she'd said it before. But the minute she said it, something deep inside me kind of recognized there's a lot of truth somewhere in there you need to you need to figure out what that is and I asked her lots of questions and I never got to the bottom of anything but what I was now aware of for the first time was that I push people away in that time of my life I was opening my arms to people in one respect and I was keeping them at arm's length and pushing them away with the other and I look back and a lot of that was behavior that was driven through those that period of, of my childhood of really lacking any deep connection and understanding of women, believing that women were different to men. In so many ways, they're so similar. And I would treat them completely differently. And I suffered as a result. My relationships were very strained. Um, I wasn't able to introduce women into my life particularly well. And romantic point of view as well, this almost didn't happen. I just Women were just this foreign group that I just couldn't deal with. And I didn't want to deal with. And yeah, I was quite happy just leaving them out of my life that was very sad yeah yeah it is it is hard and so i think that's common for a lot of a lot of guys yeah, and yeah. Always, i always wonder who these these angels are that come and are willing to say those things to you that you give a fuck off signals 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because I look at significant people in my life who've, who've said or done things for me, and it's so often been women that have, that have said things of, you know, particularly around that, I suppose before more recently when I, my, my work has moved into more masculinity and exploring being a man. In the earlier years, there's so much related, so much insight I was getting from women, women who on one level I just couldn't understand and couldn't connect with. And maybe that was one of the reasons why that they were so able to get, not under my skin, but it kind of deeply penetrated me with things that they would say that these deep truths that I so needed to hear. And eventually, you know, these women would help to help me to see that. And yeah, it was a, in many ways, it was a gift. They always say your, your greatest wounds come your greatest gifts. And I have, I have a lot of wounds around women. So I suppose it, it kind of makes sense on some level that the gifts that helped me through that period would also come from women. So when you say wounds, do you feel like you you were hurt by a woman? You know, like you said, you had a tumultuous relationship with your sister. Yeah, and it's funny because right now we get on probably better than you could ever imagine a brother and sister getting on. Just, she's just amazing. But yeah, I, I would say that there is there is a wound that I feel quite deeply regarding, you know, how I experience the world. I don't want to say how I was treated because, you know, Somebody else would be treated in a certain, in the same way. They would not have the same outcome. But I, I experienced what happened in a way that's very unique to me. And the way that I've, in, I've kind of analysed that and interpreted that has been that it, yeah, it was some kind of wound that I, yeah, deeply hurt and took me many years to get over. And yeah, I struggled for a long time with that, and still do actually, because a lot of my instinctive kind of programming within my body you know that when something happens I, I, I find myself still instinctively responding in a certain way that is almost coded into me through years and years of experiencing this but now I can you know with awareness I can kind of observe that behavior and I can just you know I can let it go and I can see it for what it is and move forward but there is a still a stop response that my body almost has that is coded from you know from those difficult times it's like woman woman can hurt you, so be careful here. Yeah, and surprisingly, as I then went on to have relationships, you know, I pushed women away hugely, and in some ways I still do, because something inside me is saying, yeah, women can hurt you. And I know intellectually that I can analyse that and come up with a very sensible explanation as to, you know, why that might be and the kind of steps I need to do to, to, to move through it. But I can't get away from the fact that there's something in my body that, or something deep inside me that is still is living through me, and it's that little boy that want that little boy who got you know hurt, and he's still wanting to kind of be hurt. He's he's still worried about me. He's still trying to you know care for me, and that's his way of doing it. And when you so you say when you get to about twenty seven, there's there's a kind of a realization that's the the end of the lost years for you. Do you remember the moment you sort of realized you needed to change? I think yeah, it was. I started dating someone. And she was like my first serious girlfriend. We dated for a year. And she was a lot older than me. It's about 10 years older than me. And she, it's interesting as you see people in your life and how significant you see them. At the time, I didn't see her as a very significant person in my life, you know. But as I look back, she was such a significant person in my life. She helped me to learn to be with women, to love women. She taught me to um, start to love myself more. Um, around that time, I was in a shared house with some friends, 
and we just got lucky. I don't know, it was a luck. There was just four of us in this house that just got on so well. It's two men, two women, and we were just, we'd have meals, you know, with, with our partners, and we just have this wonderful time of sharing, of laughing, of just having fun. And I remember thinking a few times, you know, wow, is this what everyone else gets to feel all the time? This is amazing. You know, I mean, and it was one of the things that, because I've I struggled in this area for so long, I am so grateful for when the good times arrived. And I continue to be so grateful. And for that reason, I'm almost grateful now as I can look back for those 15 years, because I, I do take into granted, obviously we all do, but so often I will come back and just go, this is insane. This is, I'm so lucky to have what I have in my life. But I might not have had if I felt this was just a normal thing to have in my life. Oh, everyone has this. It's like we just take running water for granted. But if you'd lived for 15 years without running water, every time you turn the tap, there'd be a little part of you that just would sing inside you. Mm. And I suppose that's the part of me that still to this day, when I, I look and see what I do have relative to what I didn't have during those 15 years, it just makes me deeply grateful what I have. Yeah, it's making me smile because I um I remember having similar things, just living in shared houses, you know, with uh, with three or four people. And there's something about that time I think because you don't have mortgages and I know life just doesn't seem as serious at that at that time. Yeah. That, and if you're all on the same boat, it's just a really fun it's a really fun time of your life sharing shared living. And I guess as you get older you don't do that as much. You decide you want to live on your own and yeah, life gets gets a little bit more a little bit more serious. Yeah, I mean, when I was with one of the people in that house, I mean, she was up here like yesterday. Unfortunately, we couldn't arrange to see, but this is like 15 years on. You know, we still hang out, we still see each other. And um, yeah, there's a freedom that comes with that. You can look at things through through rose-tinted glasses. It's a utopian time, but it was, there were different worries. The worries I have today, maybe in my mind, are just as big as the worries back then, but as I, as I look back, they don't seem quite so big now. As I look back, they look like, oh, that was a great, easy time. That was fun. It was, but no, I had big problems. I had big things that I was struggling and working through. You know, it wasn't in a job I liked. I was struggling in, in other parts of my life. But it was certainly simpler compared to some of the things I'm doing I have in my life now. And was that your first girlfriend at that time? My second girlfriend, but it was the first one that was serious. Mm. Um, so we, were, we didn't live together, but we, we dated for a, a year. She actually went on to move to New Zealand, actually. A lucky um, woman. Yeah, she, she was a lot older than me, and she was married. She um, she was going through a, a divorce, and it's kind of the awkward moment in someone's life when you walk into a pub and get introduced to somebody. So, hi, Mike. Yeah, this is my husband, Chris. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, hi, Chris. <laughs> oh, my God. That, they were, they'd been separated for 18 months, but still it was, yeah, part of me found that quite sexy but also quite shameful at the same time quite, <laughs> kind of felt like quite bizarre yeah it's quite a strange combination of feelings that I, that I experienced there and what was strange was he was you know he was a really nice guy and we got on really well which also made it a bit quite memorable but quite strange at the same time mm. and so so she was the catalyst for for some personal growth oh yeah I mean it was because of that relationship that I, just, I really took a step back and looked at my life. And I was living in a, prior to this particular great house I was in, I was in a terrible situation for a few years in, in, some, in one particular house where I was living in with people that were just not good. And, and it was funny that I just let things slide. And through that relationship, I, yeah, it would have been probably because of it. I, I took a step back and 
and I had this realization, you know, I, I like to have themes at New Year. And my theme for the year was take a risk. This is the year you have to take a risk. If you don't, you're just going to be in the same job. I was in this job which I didn't like for about five years. wasn't going anywhere. And I just thought, something has to change. And I went for a contracting job, which was earning three times what I was on. I got it. And I moved to another northern city, Leeds. And I lived there. I ended up living there for 12 years. I still have a house there. And... You know, I was very settled there for, for many years. and it, But it was that relationship was the trigger to start taking chances, start living, start. You never know what might happen. And it was a, that year was a huge change for me. Everything changed. And, and where does it go from there? So you, you, you end up in Leeds. Yeah, from Leeds, I was there for, for years, had various relationships, one for about three years with someone, and but never really settled and couldn't never really commit I was always like I was on I was conditional I lived in a very conditional way I was holding back I wasn't able to really open my heart to people and be truly vulnerable and I had a, a religious upbringing so we were brought up in my dad's family very Catholic we were brought up Christians I'm not Christian now but that religious time of my life is still with me that feeling of connection to something deeper something beyond myself and I started to explore that. And it was really in a relationship that started about five or six years ago where things really started to change. Prior to then, and up until that point, I was in jobs that, you know, I was well paid. I was doing a really good, really good job, making lots of money. And I decided that, yeah, things just weren't, weren't great. When I met this woman and she was, yeah, she changed my life, really, this woman. And we dated for a year. We were due to get married, and, but as part of getting married, I had to convert to Islam because she was a Muslim, and I, we were going to do it. It was called the Nikah. I had to go through the Nikah in order to convert to Islam, and we talked it through. We knew, I knew exactly what I was doing, and I talked to my parents about it, and my dad, who was still a firm believing Christian, and, and what was struck me about my dad was, he said to me, well, you need to make the right decision for you. You need to think about this. You need to think about that, you know, but make sure it's right for you. And it was all about me. It wasn't about himself or his belief. And the position I arrived at eventually, I was actually, I remember I was in London. I was walking around London for this course and just literally in a, almost like a day-long panic attack of this deep anxiety. Something in me was just screaming at me. I didn't have a clue what was going on. I just felt like I couldn't breathe. And I just... I knew, I knew I can't do this. I cannot do this. Um, it just all felt wrong. It just felt like I'd be living a lie, trying to make out that I was something that I wasn't. I, it was not something I thought I have to do this in order to be with this woman who I loved deeply. It was an incredible relationship and there was no loss of feeling, but it, we just, it couldn't happen without me making this, this change in my life. And it was only when I decided not to do it that my dad spoke to me again and he said to me, I'm glad you didn't do it. And I couldn't believe that it was only after I made the decision that he, he told me that. Mm. You know, he held on to his beliefs, you know, for my betterment in his mind. And I just thought that was a tremendous sacrifice that he made because he didn't want to influence me with his beliefs. He wanted me to find the right path. And, yeah, I get quite emotional when I even think about that because I thought that's such 
self-sacrifice of your own beliefs. He just wasn't interested in what was right for him. He really, all he wanted was what was right for me. And I just, it blew me away. You hear so much of the opposite of it. Yeah, I mean, I left my job a few years later and I've been talking about it for some time. I got into coaching about five years ago. And so here's, here's Mike, who's got a good job, lovely house, he owns it, got a good car, got everything that you might think. And I'm talking about leaving it. And again, my mum and my dad, yeah, cool. If that's what you think you need to do, then let's do it. Like some parents be like, oh, what about this? What about that? How, how will it make us look? What are we going to say down, down the tennis club or whatever? And none of that. They, they have said to me, just so we know, when we do meet our friends, what do we say to them? <laughs> just so we know. Because <laughs> it's like Chandler out of Friends, if you know that show. Uh, nobody really knows what he does. Yeah. For many years, I think my parents felt the same about me. You know, We don't quite know what you do. They, they do now. But yeah, there was a tremendous support. And it was always when I was a kid, back to those instruments. You know, We showed an interest in something that was better for the betterment of us. They stood by us 100%. There was never, we think you should be a teacher, we think you should do this. It was always, what do you want to do and how can we support you to get there? And that's, you know, sometimes I maybe take that for granted because it was amazing mm. the ability for them to do that. And so what happened to that relationship? Did you end up, obviously you couldn't get married, but did you have to end the relationship as well? Yeah, yeah. So, but that then played on for four years. So we broke up. And then played around with getting together for about 18 months. Um, we'd meet up and things, would, and we'd leave and we'd separate and be like months, maybe even a year, maybe without seeing each other. And then there'd be a contact again. And, and it was like these emotional hooks we had in each other. And, and I just realized that something had to change. And the last time I saw her was about 18 months ago. And it was one of the most startling experiences of my life in many ways i drove we went to see she was back in this country from she worked abroad she said you know how about meeting up just to chat to catch up and we spent a few hours together i drove back to her house dropped her off when we said goodbye and i inside myself i thought this is the last time we're ever going to see her and i i broke down and i cried in a way that i'd never experienced in my life which is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in the work that I do, which is about, you know, exploring who you are, embodiment, you know, release of emotion through the body, because my entire body expressed emotion in a way that scared me. I cried so deeply. It was just, it was scary. It was literally 10 minutes of just convulsion. And as I reflected on it sometime later, I was like, oh my God, all that was trapped in my body. And her walking out and away from me was just my body like purging, just one of probably many layers of emotion in my body. And yeah, I was I was a bit spaced out for some time after that, you know, a few weeks, of like what the hell happened there? But ultimately that was the end of the relationship. And there was a real kind of cathartic letting go that that, that came with that. Yeah, it was a very big moment in my life. Hmm. I love that you bring that up because it's, I think it's one thing we don't do well. I was just talking to a friend last week that we don't do well with death, but we, we also don't do well with death of things. And I think, you know, like that's a very common one that just holding on to an ex or not fully letting go of an ex. 
Yeah. Um, because there's some, I guess there's some fear there of having that completely dead, you know, having all those memories and everything completely severed. Absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at grief, we think of grief as being the physical death of, of a loved one or something, whereas, because, whereas grief is, is the loss of a relationship. It's letting go, properly cutting the ties and letting go of a relationship. Now, this is the four stages of grief of actually moving through those steps. And I believe they do something similar in, in the 12 stages, the 12 step programs of just allowing something, you know, embracing and thanking it for what it is, but then letting it die. Because part of us doesn't want, doesn't want to let go of it. And that need to let, not let go is, is an emotional hook that will remain in, in that person, in that relationship energetically for as long as you allow it to. And that will stop you then from giving that expression, that feeling, that emotion to somebody else, of your, your new partner, your new wife, your new husband, whoever that person is. If you're allowing yourself to energetically continue to hold on to emotion with somebody else, how can you clean that? Now, I know you know John Wyman, somebody we both know, and John's had a huge impact on me. And there's a a particular practice which he's introduced me to, which I've got to be honest, I hate, which <laughs> immediately tells me <laughs> he's onto something good. And I've rejected this, if I'm honest, I've rejected this practice for the time being. I just can't deal with it. And it's, it comes from Carlos Castaneda, and it's a practice to do with cleaning yourself of feminine energy. So speaking to women, significant women in your life, and giving them an opportunity to um, say anything to you and to clear angst, clear emotion, clear energy between you for their betterment. So this isn't, I don't, I wouldn't speak in this process. I would just give them an opportunity to, to clear what they need to clear with me. And, and my gift to them is, is a gift of what is it that you would want from me in order to, for us to be clean. And that might be donation. It might be a, you know, a job. It might be something. And there's something in that practice which I really dislike because of lots of stuff to do with my past about upsetting women, me contacting ex-girlfriends, for example, and doing this with them just absolutely terrifies me. I mean, I just I can't even begin to tell you the number of reasons as to why I think that's a terrible idea. But <laughs> I'm doing it in a men's group and all the other men are doing it and they're all like having big wins and I'm like, oh, God, man, there's, there's something in this. And I'm really struggling with it. But... There's something in there about the point being about energetically releasing yourself of energetic hooks or or something connected to that that woman. And yeah, it's something which I'm really interested in exploring, but I just don't feel like I'm ready for it right yet. Yeah, that, that makes my palms sweaty just thinking about that. <laughs> I don't even date women. <laughs> it goes deep with me that one. It's a it's a tough one. But you know, I mean, mentioning it here, I don't. You know, I want to kind of air it. I want to talk yeah, well, you're about it. Now. I want to explore it, you know. <laughs> so you mentioned John's work and the work you're doing with John. Can you expand a bit more on that? How did you get into that work and, and what does it involve for people that don't know that, that world? Yeah, sure. So I was at um, a David Taylor event. I, know, I think David's been on your show, actually. And, yes. And we were just doing this coaching uh, exercise. And this was about three years ago. Something like that three and a half years ago, and, and I came up with this thing that I felt real strong connection to, which was to help men. A lot of the women I was coaching at the time, so a lot of the people I was coaching at the time were women. And I suddenly had this realization that there were so many things helping women, 
but there was nobody helping, specifically helping men, like specifically me. You know, when I was going through my difficult times, what in hindsight could I have turned to for support? And I realized that the people that I was helping more deeply, I would say, were were men. And I suddenly hit me, I thought, wow, there's something in this. And David connected me with John, who was coming to the UK in a bizarrely in like six weeks' time, he's coming to the UK to do this this men's weekend. I was like, wow, the timing is incredible. Uh, he'd never done it in the UK before and and I I turned up and we went through a men's embodiment weekend where we explored some of the Jungian archetypal energies, so warrior, magician, king, lover. We explored our male lineage, our relationship with our fathers. We explored purpose. We explored the physical embodiment of what it means to be a man. We explored anger and rage. We, and, and I remember... So, so what does that mean? Because it's, you just spoke another language to a lot of people listening. Right. So what this means is... So Carl Jung came up with this concept many years ago that within man there are certain energies these energies are energies which are not specific to culture they are specific to the fact that you are born along a male lineage and there was a book by Moore and Gillette who I forget their first name Robert Moore and somebody Gillette who created a book called Warrior King Magician Lover to Warrior King Magician Lover and they suggested that the four mature versions of the of the male archetypal energy with these four energies so the warrior being the kind of the killer the you know i will support and defend you this kind of um, gladiator energy then there's the lover energy which is like um as its name suggests it's like a casanova um it's a beautiful loving energy that you want to bring to your relationship you want to bring your lover and and so forth with the other energies that they are they're representing certain character traits and energies that you most people would want to bring to their relationships so we would do these practices with other men we would do eye to eye work we would explore through feedback from other men how am i how are you experiencing me and that was tough to to experience you know so some so how trustable am i right now was one question we got asked Mm -hmm. and i was stood next to john morgan if you know john you know, and he, I was partnering with him, who's another coach in the kind of coaching world. And he would, he said to me, um, I know, like four. I was like, what? Four out of ten for how trustable I am as a man. And and John would encourage us to give each other feedback. You know, what I would want more from from you, Mike, is I wouldn't want, want more of this. I'd want you to do this more. I want you to, to stand up straighter, breathe more deeply. And, and what the work started to help me see was. This is how I was being, this is how I was showing up in my life. This is how other people were experiencing me. This is how the world felt me. They felt me as being a four out of 10 trustability. So if I was struggling meeting women, if I was struggling inspiring people to into coaching conversations, this was go, went some way to telling me why I might be doing that. So through this work, started to explore who am I? <laughs> I, I look in the mirror and I see who I think I am, but I'm getting feedback from other really good men who are telling me, no, this is how we feel. you. This is how we see you. And I was so open to the feedback. I wasn't, who are you to tell me? It was, oh my God, this is, this is true. And this is just the best information I could ever get. I've never received this from anybody before. What can I do with this? 
And that's, that was the start of the journey. So I guess you had no idea what you were getting into. <laughs> Nobody did. And he said that at the beginning. It's like, where have you got like 15 people in a room and none of you have got a clue what's going to happen, yet you're here, which is interesting. Why are you here? So we're all, all of the men in that room were all looking for something. We're all searching. And many of us found something that day. I remember on the, it was a three-day workshop, I remember on the third day, I don't think I said anything. I was just kind of numb. <laughs> I, my body had just experienced, my mind had experienced so much. My, my whole body, my nervous system was recalibrating, you know, who, who it thought I was. And I remember just commenting, I, I can't, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I just kind of, I was just, yeah, a bit shell-shocked. But the, the benefit from it was just, um, just enormous, absolutely enormous. Mm-hmm. I've never been the same since. And is it is this kind of work as uh, you know the, the men's work? Is do you think every man should do it? Do you think it's for every man? No, no. I mean, I believe find what works for you. I think anybody who starts saying to you every man should do this. You know, how can every man on the planet really be right for them? It's right for you if you say it's right for everyone else. It's clearly right for you. Great. But don't shame other people in suggesting that, if, you know, if you're a man, then you should do this. I think many men will find it tremendous value. Many men will hate it. Many men will think, this. what is this about? Just like many men will respond in that way to sport, or to certain music, to certain food. There's nothing that is right for everybody. But for those that it is right for, it's life-changing. Yeah, great answer. And so where, where has it led you in terms of your own work and your own mission? Yeah, so when I was doing, when I first started this work, I was working in my day job, my office job. I wasn't in a relationship. I, this was the, during the four-year period where I was in and out of relationship with my the partner I mentioned earlier. And... I joined a men's group, so a men's program. This was a, an online version of what we were doing with John in London in this group of men that I described, this archetypal work. And in this group, this pr- online program, we started to explore the work in a lot more depth. And one or other version of that group lasted for about one and a half to two years. And what I found interesting was every man in that group was self-employed and living their purpose in some way, deeply connected to what it was they wanted to do with their life. I was the only one that wasn't. So in many ways, it was just the perfect place for me to be grounded and schooled in for myself, to school myself in, in what, where to go next with my life. And it was about a year or so of being around these men that I resigned. And it was actually five months after my 40th birthday. So some people I think might have suggested it was some kind of midlife crisis, but it was not, not a single second did I ever regret that decision. It just, and I never planned to do it on the day I did it. I was just talking to a colleague, and from that conversation, I ended up going back to my desk. I remember I just wrote my resignation letter, and an hour later, handed it to my boss. And it was very compulsive, and I was it ne- never regretted it. Didn't know what I was going to do. Knew that it was something in the area of working with men but the insight that I had was there was two insights I had that really contributed to me leaving one was the question of if not now when what needs to happen 
and it get really specific. What needs to happen for you to leave this job and to get make a go of it? And I realized that nothing new needed to happen. I wasn't going to get the job of my dreams or someone wasn't going to come up to me and give me this amazing coaching job. So I thought nothing needs to happen. And the other thing was I, I was always struggling what I wanted, what it, what it was that was going to be next. And the realization I had was that I needed to create space to find what came next. Being in a full-time job, in a full-time life, I was never going to deeply connect to what came next. It needed to create some space. So I went volunteering. I'm interested in eco-sustainable projects. So I ended up working around Europe for a, a few months, working on eco-projects and spiritual retreats. I lived in a Hare Krishna retreat. I lived in a Buddhist retreat. I lived in Norway and helped build a, an eco-cabin and I did all these things to create space hmm. and then eventually things started to settle and that's why I realized that it was working with men that I wanted to do and it was helping men through, I suppose really through the journey that I was, I went through. A lot of men are feeling really trapped and not expressing themselves authentically as to who they are. They've lost connection with who they are and they don't know what to do about it. They need support. And I wanted to help to model to them this transference that I had in my life, this kind of transfer from one stage of life to another. And yeah, it led to the Inspiring Men Project, which is the organization I set up a year ago. Amazing. And tell me more about that. Yeah, so it's interesting because I was reading about you and, and the work and what inspired this podcast. And you talked about suicide, male suicide, and trying to promote and model two men having a deep impactful conversation and that was similarly that was where, where I started with mine it was male suicide was just I couldn't believe it was 78% the last survey I saw was in 2013 it was something like 78% of suicides are are men yeah. and the project initially started focusing on on some of those statistics around the problems that men were experiencing in in their lives and what it moved on to was more a representation of my experience. So whilst I've experienced depression and some very difficult times, I was never suicidal. And I felt that I wanted to put my work into things that I had more direct uh, experience of. And it was basically feeling lost and trapped in life. So I started my first men's program, which was an online men's program, similar to the one that John ran with me. And a few months ago, I, I started writing. It was a, an unexpected part of the journey. It was, it's interesting when you when you step into a more purposeful life and you step into taking chances and and following your heart more and your intuition. One of the important things that I found was necessary to do was to just to trust and just get curious. Just, oh, I wonder where things are going to head today. I wonder what avenue is going to present itself that never would never have appeared in my sphere of reality yesterday but today is where I want to take where I'm going and that's not to be like chasing chasing things it was just it felt like a deep progression of the work and it took me into writing so I started writing articles about men about finding more meaning in life how to experience and feel more deeply and have more meaningful relationships how to find more success in life and, and ultimately how to express yourself more as a man in in your view of what it means to be a man. So again, you see a lot of what people think being a man means, and I encourage men to explore it for themselves. What do you think it means to be a man? And 
a lot of that requires deep. To look deeply into yourself is to, you know, who are you? How do you know what it means to be a man for you if you don't know who you are? So the work I do is to help men to start to peel away the layers. Um, I think it was Mark Manson who used this analogy of the onion, you know, this pursuit that I describe as like an onion. And the more layers you peel away, the more you, like an onion, the more you start to cry. <laughs> and <laughs> and it, that resonated with me, this idea that, you know, there's something in the centre and it's from that place that you can start to have the conversation of what it means to be a man. What, it, what it, does it mean to have a meaningful, deep, passionate relationship? What does it mean to have purpose? If you're in your head and you're believing your X, Y, Z over here, then that's not the place from which you can answer these deep questions. It's from a deep connection to who you really are. That's really the centre of the work that I've done with John, and it's the centre of the work that I'm most inspires me at the moment. It's brilliant work, and I love your clarity around it. Actually, I love the way that you approach it too because it doesn't feel very, feels very flexible and very relative to each person that you come into contact with. If people want to reach out to you, Mike, what's the best way to do that? The Inspiring Project um, is my website and there's all sorts of different blogs, articles. I've got men's programs on there. Coaching is available through that website. Um, it's all sorts of resources on there. There's very soon there's going to be a, uh, a quiz to help you to explore your purpose and living a life of purpose. So there's all sorts of things on the Inspiring Men Project website. Fantastic. Thanks. We'll put the link to that in the in the show notes. And you probably uh, know the last question that we ask everybody, mm-hmm. but about the uh, the dark side, you know, you've done a lot of deep inner reflection more than most. What, what do you know about your own dark side? How do you embrace it? One of the things I've realized on this journey is that growth comes from stepping into fear. And for me, a lot of fear as I perceived it through my life has been in the dark, it's been in the shadows of, of who I am. And the more I shine a light onto those shadows, the more they can begin to integrate into a more whole version of who I am. I'm currently in the position of thinking that they never will fully integrate. I always feel that there's something still there. I'm not sure if that's the case for everyone, but for me, I've done a lot of work on some of these shadows and they're still there, but my relationship to them is what changes. So one of my shadows, I've got so many, is just this really needy little boy who doesn't think he's enough and wants to be told he's wonderful. For some reason, I might not have got, I never perceived myself as getting sufficient when I was a child. I was an incredibly loving family, but I gave meaning clearly to something that happened in my life. And, um, so if I'm not enough, it's for me, it's constantly leaning into that and, and putting myself into situations to challenge that and ask myself, is that true? You know, in those 15 years I described, I hid for a long time and I don't want to hide anymore. So doing things like this, sharing vulnerable parts of who I am helps me to, to bring more of that shadow lovingly into the light because we can shame the shadow if we don't watch it. We can shame the shadow and... And actually by bringing your light to it, shame it even more and push it deeper down. Mm-hmm. But the more we can open ourselves with love to that part of ourselves and love the part of ourselves that we're denying, then that is the place from which we can start to more fully integrate that part into who we are. And that's been a really important part of my lesson. Because one of the problems that men have is we're very good at shaming ourselves for not being the perfect man that we believe we should be. And so it's a perfect ground and land on which to, to cultivate shadow. 
is, you know, we fertilize it with shame. We water it regularly. Whereas if we can observe that behavior and bring it back and just notice, just notice it and lovingly just move forward into a, you know, for a more full expression of who you are, just noticing the shadow, embracing it for what it is, giving it what it needs. And it, it's been a tremendous benefit in my life. What are some of the benefits you get from, from bringing that into the light and, and giving it some space? I think the best place to look at the benefit of any of this kind of work is, is who you are, the life you live. Who are you? Who, who, who are you as a man? What is, what's the strength of your relationships? What's the strength of you and your integrity as a man? And the benefit of it for me is in who I am and how I show up in the world. You know, the depth of my relationships with men and women and how, you know, I can look myself in the eye, you know, each night thinking I left it all out there. Because that living those years of regret through my childhood and into my adulthood, you know, there's so much regret in there. And the more you can embrace your your shadow, the more you can live without regret. You know, at least you can say, I did everything I could. And, and that inspires people. You know, somewhat appropriate maybe for the Inspiring Project. You know, it's important to inspire people to kind of, and the way to do that isn't by forcing the situation, it's just by being you. You inspire people by being who you are. You know, I'm inspired by you, Nathan, because of what you do and who you are and the things that you do in your life, far more than you trying to inspire me. Mm. And, and the more we embrace our shadows and embrace them, these difficult parts of who we are, the more we can inspire people. Yeah, yeah. Using your own life as a a model. Yeah, I mean, if you want to know what you believe in, look at your life because your life is a is a pretty decent representation of, of your beliefs. Mm. And if you've got a lot of love in your life, and chances are you've got beliefs that support that. If you've got a lot of hate and a lot of vitriol in your life, then not always, but chances are you've got some beliefs around that as well. Maybe you've got some shadows that maybe need to come into the light to help you with that. Mike, thank you for coming on the show. It's been uh, insightful. I love the the depths of you, and I love the uh, your ability to articulate some of these things so well and make it so palatable for people. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you for making time to come on here and share. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Well, there you go, my friends, the wonderful Mike Matthews. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Go and check out Mike's website, theinspiringmenproject.com. Mike has a ton of free resources there, so go and check that out. And if you can, give me a little comment, give me a like on Facebook, and maybe I'll give you a little shout-out on the next episode. Thanks for joining. As always, love having you in here. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week with episode 58 of The Nathan Seward Show. That was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.